Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course, James Holland. Uh, James, how are you, mate? Yeah, no, I'm not too bad. We've just been, um, I've just had a, a massive day of strategizing for the Chalk Valley History Festival rather than Warfest. Um, oh. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm massively in need of a bit of downtime. Um, and what could be better than talking to our next guest, one of our, our favoured guests, John McManus, all the yeah. way from the US. And on such a fruity subject as well. Gavin, the 82nd Airborne, Nymagen, oh. Arnhem, Operation Market Garden. You see, the thing is, the thing is, Jim, when last week at the, at the We Have Ways Festival, I said to myself, maybe after this panel, I need to stop talking about Market Garden for a bit. Have some time off. <laughs> give, myself some, give myself some fresh brain air. Um, but yet here we are. Just, just one day, week on. Ten days, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I'm not. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm very excited about talking to John about this. But, but this might be when I. This might have to be it for me for another. Well, for a year. well, maybe, maybe. But, but, but you know, we, we, you know, John does know a lot about this. Well, I know. And what we're very keen on, we're always keen on fresh perspectives. I mean, I think we've had enough of Peter Caddick Adams' perspectives. We all know where Peter stands on this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, 
you know, I'm also struck by kind of, you know, compared to something like some of the major operations that take place sort of end of 1944, beginning of, you know, first bit of 1945. Actually, Market Garden's comparatively small in compare, you know, compared with... You know, and short and short and, and all those sort of things and yet yeah, the yeah, amount of yeah. time we spend on it is is disproportionate but that is because there is so much debate about it isn't there and well, because and, there aren't and, any clear answers well and because i suppose what it's aiming to do isn't it you, you, you if Shorten you compare the war, right? it to well exactly if you compare it to you know veritable which is or blackcock or infatuate or any of these massive things that the british army do certainly and sometimes in partnership with the american army None of them have the aim of ending the war, (laughs) shortening shortening the war. None of them are laden with that what if, are they? Which I think must be why we keep coming back to it. (laughs) Anyway, John, welcome. Sorry, we've been talking about you. Like you're like the... the, Not in the room. (laughs) We're in the waiting room. The two surgeons dis- yeah, discussing the guy in the waiting room there. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you know, you're right. Market Garden is just endlessly compelling. I, I can not I can never get enough of it either, even though I've been through it a thousand times. I mean, it's just... And I do think I do think that's a good point, that it's it's one of the few, if the only operation, that, that's designed to try and end this thing. And so yeah. it creates this kind of mystique to it, misguided though it is. Yeah. It seems to be a missed opportunity, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, because um, I think it's in Martin Middlebrook's book, um, uh, which he wrote in the in the early to mid nineties about about just the Arnhem component of the battle, where he has ger- some of the Germans saying, but German people saying to him, "This is the battle we wish you'd won. This is the battle yeah. that that we yeah. wish had gone gone your way." Because because then of because if because if the Western allies are in Berlin by Christmas of nineteen forty five, or the or the Germans collapse somehow before the Christmas of, 19, of, of 1944, rather. Um, that changes the Cold War sort of irrevocably and Germans, Germany's division and uh, and then subsequent reunification and all. It's all it's all different, isn't it? It, it, it would necessarily yeah. be so. Um, yeah. And it, it saves a lot of destruction for Germany from the yeah. air and on the ground. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And obviously a lot of trauma from being conquered by the Red Army. Exactly. And how would the Holocaust work out if there's not time to do the sort of the last nine months rush that that that, that they uh, yeah. try to process through? So, I mean, that, I think, and I think that really is why, aside from the movies, that really is why uh, it's so magnetic. Sure. Yeah, surely. What I, do you I think, think so. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, it's just, it, you know, you've you've got all these highly motivated, highly trained forces doing something which, you know, could shorten the war. What's not to like on, on on paper, and and of course there's such a massive difference between what's on paper and, and what's what's reality, but but it is interesting, isn't it? You know, there's that frustration because you know the Germans have long gone past the point where they have even the slightest chance of winning. You know, and on one hand they've got the Soviet Union coming towards them. You know, why wouldn't the Germans in the West kind of do everything they could to help the Western powers who are not going to be as vindictive as as the Red Army? You know, it just seems absolutely insanity. And of course, the reasons yeah. is complicated and a lot to do with Hitler and the maniacal will of the Führer and all that sort of stuff that that other people have been over a, a zillion times. But it is still really frustrating. And obviously, you know, having done all this stuff on the Sherwood Rangers, you know, that frustration and anger they feel in the closing weeks and months of the war when it's so obvious it's all over so why on earth are people still jumping out from forests with panzerfaust and killing their friends why are you doing this you know just just give up i mean and here is this this real sort of tangible opportunity to end the war quickly 
and of course it doesn't come to pass and so you have this yeah. subsequent eight months of kind of brutal ghastly slog instead well and plus it's airborne which immediately romanticizes it glamorous yes. instantly and, glamorous. and glamorizes it and whatever else and you know the other thing too is the location of the the fighting which is in one of europe's sort of wealthiest most built-up areas um a, a place of tremendous development and infrastructure and a place that obviously you know i mean the, the dutch resistance is part of this as well so you have that element to the story and dutch politics and um you know so many world war ii battlefields don't i know this from studying the pacific are in woe-begone places none of us would ever want to go right um this is in one of the nicest spots uh you know i mean osterbeck is a is a beautiful suburb and 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 then it becomes this battlefield and um, and I think that somehow that's appealing too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I went there in uh, it would have been probably 1983 um, with with my father. It being like England, it it, it being in fact Arnhem. I, I went to school in a town called Bedford, which is on a river, um, on a meandering river in East Anglia, um, and it has sort of villages off to the side of it, and it felt like being somewhere completely familiar it felt like you know tangent like you say tangible and recognizable in a way that normally we've been to before was very much more like a a, a foreign place because of the landscape in particular like a rural properly rural place whereas this felt because it's sort of urban but a bit shishi you know Oosterbeek's Mm -hmm. Oosterbeek's like you say it's really rather nice it's a it's a it's a nice place to visit people holidayed there they had holiday homes there from from Amsterdam, from Rotterdam, and uh, would come up at the weekend from the city. And it was full of expat, uh, uh, you know, returned expatriate people, wasn't it? Who'd, who'd come back to retire. So it was rather well-to-do and rather nice. And it re- very much reminded me of, of you know, pla- places I knew as a boy at the time. And so that also, I think, sort of plugs it into being uh, 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 somewhere, somewhere to sort of, you can get your head round as much as anything else. Yeah, it was very easy to relate to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, the civilians, you know, the, the Dutch, their reaction to it as well. It's precisely what we want to think when we think of our World War II. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, as Anglo yeah, Americans, yeah. yeah, we're liberating people. We're, we're people are excited to see us, and, yeah. and so this is kind of Exhibit A. Yeah, uh, and for Americans, especially, you know, um, I mean, I think Band of Brothers conveys this very well. Uh, the scene where they're giving chocolate to a little boy yeah. and it's the first time he's had chocolate and, and the Americans are saying to one another, we love this country. It's like the yeah. U.S. And, and, and of course, <laughs> and that, that's, I think, a very American kind of uh, uh, viewpoint of the world, too. So I, I think all those things add up to our continuing fascination with Market Garden. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. But but I'm I'm keen to focus on the 82nd Airborne with our conversation with you, John, because we've done an awful lot of chat on on the brits at at arnhem we haven't really touched on the 101st but there's sort of less to say on that one but the 82nd airborne you know i know the 101st because of band of brothers are kind of more famous today but the 82nd have (laughs) they kind of get the thin end of the wedge really don't they they kind of you know that they've they've had sicily they've had arguably a, a a tougher fight in normandy um, and, and more challenging, and they're certainly in action longer than the 101st in Normandy. And then they're given Nijmegen, which is kind of, you know, 10 miles south of Arnhem. And actually, it's a pretty challenging proposition, what they've got to do. Because I think I'm right in saying they, they've got to get they've got to get over the bridge at Grave. 
They get it. They've got to get another bridge over the Marsval Canal, and then they've got to do the big one, which is the the, the bridge at Nijmegen over the Vaal, which is a it's a big old river, isn't it? It's a big old bridge, and it's full of challenges because you've got Nijmegen itself, which is a big sort of urban built up area. John, John, what state what state was the division in when when Market Garden? <coughs> happens because they've obviously um, replacements and all that sort of thing what what condition was it in uh the division's in pretty good condition all things considered you know like uh, james had mentioned the division really got beat up in normandy um you know fighting for a month and a half and la haye de puy kind of is the the sort of coup de gras yeah. in terms of casualties yeah. and combat readiness um the division is in leadership transition ridgeway has been promoted to 18th airborne corps commander and now you know General Gavin takes over 82nd Airborne, so there's that. Uh, so you've had new replacements. You've had guys coming back from the hospital, but I, I think their combat readiness is excellent by September 17th. Um, but, you know, obviously, so you're, they're in sort of in that sweet spot of a veteran unit, one that's been been blooded, I guess, as they would say, but yeah. um, but it's still really potent. And, and there's no question, as James had pointed out, um, they're given the most ambitious mission by far among the U.S. troops. I mean, the 101st mission, not that it's easy, but you're so much closer to uh, to 30 Corps uh, yeah. to, to coming to get you. And and uh, and just the size of the 82nd Airborne's area of operations is enormous. I mean, we're talking about the major bridges. There's also the Hooman bridges. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's about eight plus bridges that they also have to get in addition to the major right. ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and starting from Grav upward, and of course, oh, by the way, they're going to have to deal with the Grossbeck Heights and the Reichswalds where there could be, yeah. you know, German counterattacks, and as it turned out, were. Uh, so, <clears throat> and this is the sort of crux of the problem. From the beginning, the 82nd Airborne's mission is just too much to, to deal with. Um, to grab those bridges, which is the whole point of this enterprise, and to attempt to hold the high ground. And uh, what I've always thought is that General Gavin's experience on the famous day of the wall crossing, uh, you know, September 20th, is when all this finally comes to a head because he wants to be there watching these crazy guys crossing their canvas boats and all, you know, that we remember from a bridge too far, but he actually then has to go deal with major crises on the Grosbeck Heights of German counterattacks that could crush the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and right there is the problem with, with yeah. the whole mission. Well, it's very interesting because border town of Beek, which is kind of half in Netherlands and half in Germany, um, is two mile two and a half miles from the bridge across the Vaal in the center of Nijmegen the 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 big bridge that they've got to get the mm -hmm. absolute key one well they're all key but you know what I mean it's 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 uh, you know yeah. of the bridges it's the kind of one that's the most perilous to take and the most challenging I mean it's worth you know and, and that's no distance at all so you're you're literally on the doorstep of Germany I mean it's worth mentioning the gross big heights isn't it because people talk about the gross big heights but, but what is that what is that what does that mean you know it's an area of uh, i guess about 5 miles in depth about 2 miles 3 miles in 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 width um it is literally just on the south you know it, it touches the kind of southeast corner of and southern part of Nijmegen um their heights because everywhere around there is completely flat as a board and polder country and what we mean by polder country is basically area that the where all roads need to be raised up um yeah, from the reclaim, surround, reclaim reclaim ground land, yeah. yeah reclaim flood ground yeah. you know in, in in terms of height you're talking you know not very high at all are you maybe kind of 100 foot or something like 200 feet absolutely tops it's wooded which makes it very difficult to kind of fight through 
Um, so it has a lot of challenges, but when you're talking about heights, you're not talking about sort of huge, great cliff faces or massive, great hills or mountains or anything like that. You're talking <laughs> about it, it's only significant because everywhere around it is flat, right? Absolutely. And it's it's very similar to what you saw in Normandy uh, with with some of the, you know, the, the Martinville Ridge and some of the other hilltops that are looking all the way to the beaches. It's because the ground is fairly flat. Now, of course, in Normandy, you have the, the hedgerows in the way, too. But um, Holland is similar in that sense that, yeah, if you have a ridgeline of a couple feet, couple hundred feet up, that's very significant because you're looking down all the way to Nijmegen and the bridges and all that. And this is, of course, the concern the Allied planners have from the beginning and 82nd Airborne in particular, what happens if the Germans get that, uh, the, the Grossbeck Ridge line heights, whatever we want to call it, and begin to lob artillery on the bridges and then deal with armor that way. And so, you know, you're kind of dealing with that nightmare, even as you have this coup de main to take all these various bridges and not just take them, but hold them. Right. Um, <laughs> because the Germans are reacting. And, yeah. and there was, of course, for the 82nd Airborne, a great deal of, uh, of planning and hope invested in taking the Grob Bridge, because if you don't have that, nothing happens. From right. it all else flows. And that part of the, the equation goes very, very well. Um, that, but Nijmegen is a much bigger town, and so now you're you're also reintroducing an element of urban combat, uh, which is going to be difficult for any formation, much less a light infantry airborne formation. Yeah. Um, you know, so... All of this is just a, is just a big ask. In, uh, uh, what in are we talking about? Uh, for a division like this. Uh, uh, sorry, John. And we're, we're talking about we're talking about three parachute infantry regiments: the the five hundred fourth, the five hundred fifth, and the five hundred eighth. And you know, in total, what are we talking about? About five and a half thousand men, something like that. Uh, maybe about north of sixty five hundred, maybe something like okay. that. But, but, but because so that's you, not you also lot. got the airborne artillery. It, it, yeah, and and this is see, I think this is in my opinion one aspect of Market Garden and the 82nd Airborne that really gets overlooked is the absence of the 325th Glider Infantry Regiment, um, which was supposed to be there far earlier than it was, but it takes the better part of six days to get that on the ground. Now, that's infantry that Gavin could have used to hold the Grosbeck Heights right. while his paratroopers were dealing with the bridges, um, in addition to all the other stuff that he's got coming in via gliders uh, yeah. quite perilously, you know, within a couple of days of the original landings. Right. Um, but what had happened, of course, is that weather had interceded and they weren't able to get the 325th down. And by the time they come into the battle, um, they're really just there to, to to hold off the German counterattacks and to hang on to this corridor. And, and now the, the dynamic of the operation has completely changed. I would argue if they're there when Gavin wants them within 24 hours or so of the, the landings, that maybe you have a little bit of a different dynamic here uh, right. that, that maybe, uh, maybe you can move a little bit more speedily to secure in the Nijmegen bridge. Yeah. Cause, cause when do they, when do they land? It's like the 23rd or something. I mean, it's, it's a, 23rd. Yeah. 23rd. So, so as it stands, so, so, so Gavin has this dilemma because where do you put your three parachute infantry regiments? You know how do you do it? Because mm -hmm. you, you, it's it's not just a question of kind of I'd like them to be here. It's it's also a question of making sure that they're in a position to get all these various bridges you need to get. That means you need to split up your whole division. You need to give each of these parachute infantry regiments with three battalions worth of of infantry, highly motivated infantry. They've all got to have their own little kind of job. So he gives the Grave Bridge to the five hundred fourth, and they're landed either either side of that, aren't they? Either side of the River Mars. Yeah, and then your other big, you know, you can't really land in in the, in the woods because that's not going to work. So you, you know, most of the gross peak heights itself is out. Um, then you've got Nijmegen itself, so so that's out. You could land kind of north 
or, or kind of um, of or west of Nijmegen, but but that's flooded ground and mm. that's no good. So your only option is to do the far side of the Grosbeek Heights and and, or, and all the woods, which is right on the edge of the of the border, and that is lovely, great big open fields, sort of softly undulating down towards the Reichswald, which is this huge, great border forest, you know, south of the Rhine, kind of, you know, protecting the eastern border of, of, of Goch and Cleve and these other towns that are going to become very familiar a few months down the line. And so you have the 508th in the northern part of that Grosbeek, the, the kind of eastern side of the Grosbeek Heights, and you've got the 505th to the south of them. And, and really, you can't really argue with that landing plan can you that drop plan no i i don't think you can either i mean he, you know gavin contemplates landing some guys north of nijmegen yeah. uh and grabbing the bridge from both ends but that that just you know that's not really going to work because for one thing that's fairly urban and so it's going to be hard to drop for another the germans are going to be counterattacking down that main road that we all call hell's highway that, that connects yep. arnhem and nijmegen yep. Uh, yep. You know, and so this is elements of the 10th SS Panzer, uh, plus a comp group, you know, of, of mishmash. And, and they whatever, know that they know these are here, don't they? They know this is a threat but, beforehand. They, they absolutely know this is a threat. So, um, you know, the, this was always going to be an issue. And, and of course, later on, you know, Gavin is criticized for, for not doing that, for not dropping these guys on the other side of Nijmegen. And uh, I've always felt, though that's understandable, it's somewhat unfair because we can't pretend like these guys aren't going to be in the middle of a crisis. Yeah. Uh, if you just, let's say you throw one battalion there, they're probably going to end up like Johnny Frost and his guys um, around Arnhem, at least, you know, probably not for as long, but they're they're going to end up in some level of crisis. To, to what extent is he picking his own drop zones? Because after all, that's the, the, there's all that controversy around uh, First Airborne that, you know, and, and of course they spent the 50s, 60s and 70s saying it's the RAF forced their hand and uh, and 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 now it looks more complex than that in fact that the air plan is more mutually agreed is is it is um is this gavin calling these drop zones or is, or is he being told no you can't you can't go there because after all you know the, the supposedly the reason that 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 you can't land at arnhem bridge is you've got to turn round the the, the air the airstream would have to turn over Dillon air base which has got too much flack on it. it's too it's too too dangerous basically for for the air crews, especially if what you're envisaging is a second lift, you know. A well, Dillon is also a major, major hub. I mean, that that's like yeah, the bigger yeah. deal or something, you know. It's, it's yeah, a, I know, I know, it's a, I know. Like a massive know. sector station. Yeah, I know exactly. But 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 that's the you know that that gets cited as the tail wagging the dog um, uh, for the selection of the Arnhem mm-hmm. drops, which is after all is a big part of the problem. I mean, I think the tail wagging the dog is trying to do it in more than one lift, and that the the moment you the moment you do that, you're you end up with the situation exactly what you've been talking about with your glider infantry don't come when you need them. And you're, and you're always, and you're it. as a general, you're working to, well, maybe when my reinforcements turn up, I'll be able to do something else, but actually. That's exactly it. That's it. Because uh, he really does have good control over the actual drop zones. Yeah. What he doesn't control is what you said, Al, uh, is that, uh, you know, what he wants is he wants his whole division on the ground in one fell yeah. swoop for the most part, yeah. um, including yeah. the 325th, but they're not going to have those double lifts. Um, so when, when that happens, when general Williams says, no, we just simply can't do that. The crews are not up to it. They're not trained well enough and all that. Um, now that dictates what Gavin can do operationally. He has no problem with the drop zones and they're chosen well, and this is the smoothest drop. And that part of it is wonderful. Yeah. Um, on September 17th, the glider, 
reinforcements, that's a different matter, you know, on the, along gross spec heights and all that. But yeah. um, so, yeah, but, but, but I'd, I'd also, if I might stick up for General Williams in one sense, is say from his point of view, um, that is a pretty big ask to have his crews do these double lifts and, and all that. I mean, you're going to run into some accidents, some problems, some screw ups. Yeah. You do have some level of opposition from uh, from flack and all that, you know, even though we've had some fascinating, um, you know, suppressive bombing missions uh, on the part of the mainly the B-24 groups and whatever. Yeah. And I think that's a really kind of overlooked part of Market Garden, too. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's quite fascinating. Those are very dangerous missions for the air crew. So if that's dangerous for the bomber people, you can imagine the transports. Yeah. Um, so, but again, it comes down to market garden as this being a very flawed animal uh, yeah. for, from the beginning. I suppose that, I don't think it should have been done, but that's my opinion. If I've got one, you know, but I, I, you know, I've, I've got a couple of sort of quibbles over the plan, uh, apart from the whole thing. I'm just talking about specifically the 82nd Airborne. <laughs> It always strikes me that the the, the kind of five hundred fourth, if you if you're kind of sort of, they're all good, right? You know, we we know the five hundred five hundred fifth, and the five hundred fourth. They're all really seriously good units. But if you're going to put kind of one perhaps above the other two, you'd probably go for the five hundred fourth. Not least because Gavin used to be the commander of the five hundred fourth, so it's the unit he knows the best. And I know there's a little bit of sort of chopping and changing of personnel and all the rest of it. But even so, you know, the, and the five hundred fourth gets grave. Which suggests to me that that in Gavin's mind, I that's the bridge that he prioritizes, and I get your point that that that's because well, that's how it, his division gets relieved. Yeah, yeah, um, but if he, but it, yeah, if it'd be me, I'd I'd like to think I would have put the five hundred fourth where the five hundred eighth is, because I think there is a question mark over Roy Lingfist. You know, I I I, th I think you know he he we know he's a really really good admin man. He's a really good desk jockey. Is he the guy who's going to have the kind of the, the 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 tactical acumen and drive to get get his regiment to the Nijmegen Bridge, and that is his responsibility. And and he and he lingers on the Grosbeek Heights. He doesn't get to that Nijmegen Bridge as quickly as possible. I just wonder whether had the five hundred fourth been there, things might have been different because it's it's the delay in getting the Nijmegen Bridge which kind of scuppers quite a lot of it. It does. And, you know, and I think the separator in these regiments is that Gavin's best regimental commander is Reuben Tucker of the 504th. Um, right. And so let's say we place Reuben Tucker in the 504th where you're saying, James, um, I would think that Reuben Tucker is probably going to to, to, ha to more skillfully uh, manage and manipulate and maneuver that move toward the Nijmegen Bridge than Lindquist. Yes. Um, you know, Lindquist is certainly his weakest regimental commander. He's not bad, uh, but he's not really the guy for this. And of course, famously, you know, he gets involved in, in uh, being guided by a Dutch resistance guy who, who I think, I think his motives are pure. He's trying to help the Americans get to this bridge as quickly as possible. And this ends up as a fiasco and doing precisely the opposite of what Gavin had told Lindquist, which was to move directly along the river and not get involved in the building to building fighting, which is where all this starts to devolve. Um, so, yeah, it is a bit anticlimactic from the, the 504 standpoint. And the other thing, too, you know, they hadn't fought in Normandy because they'd been fighting so much in Anzio um, and been beaten up so bad. And they desperately, the survivors, many of them wanted to participate in Normandy, but couldn't. And so that this uh, 504th is very, very well prepared for battle uh, by Market Garden. We need to take a short break right now. We're talking to John McManus.
Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to John McManus for one last time about Market Garden. Honest. It is interesting, though, because, the, because uh, I mean, one of the things that happens in the town of Nymergen is you sort of, the SS fight, fight a kind of reverse Arnhem battle, don't they? they? They sort of, they hang on to the bridge kind of in the way that Frost and his guys do, don't they? They're, once 30 mm-hmm. Corps arrive, they're winkled out by Arnhem, and it's kind it's sort of a, a battle in, a battle in, like a negative photo of what's going on up in Arnhem, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And, and it's just the way that whole thing plays out. Um, I think it's another reason why we're so drawn to it. Yeah. Here is Kudamain with bridges. Here is um, the Germans reacting with some of their best and worst troops, SS and others. Here's urban combat. Here's the 505th and 504th involved in completely different missions within a few hundred yards of each other. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think we tend to overlook that the, the 505th is fighting around the traffic circle. Um, and that is some of the most bitter fighting that they experienced during World War II. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and then you have this extra added element of what happens with the charges on the bridge. Um, you know, you have this Jan van Hoof story, which I've always been very, very skeptical of, the, the, the Dutch guy who supposedly goes and cuts the charges and all that. And I, I don't really buy that for a moment. Um, I think you've got a chaotic battle with a lot of artillery flying around and, and a lot of potential for, for screw ups on both sides. Um, you know, so so this is an improvisation battle. And, and, um, you know, and John, who who is it who says, OK, you know, the third 504 for the ones who are going to do the night cross, you know, do the crossing, not the night crossing, the mm-hmm. crossing over the Vaal in these little boats. Who, who, whose decision is that? Is that Gavin's or is that or is that yeah. Tucker's? That's that's Gavin's. Okay, uh, so why does and why and why does he fun. give them that job? <laughs> because the best, you know, they right? haven't done that much fighting. It's funny because they haven't done that much fighting since September seventeenth. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, for a lot of these guys, it's been since Anzio that they've right. been in action. And so now they're on the ground, and not all that much has happened for them. And they've started to gravitate north now towards Nijmegen, as you've captured the Human Bridges and whatever right. else. And so they're really sort of the best guys you have available for this. And what I've always felt is a fascinating dynamic is the resentment of the commander, 3rd Battalion 504, Julian Cook, over getting this mission um, because he, he knows the dangers. And so he, he kind of stands up to Gavin and says, well, you know, if you wanted this, why didn't you plan for it and have us drop on the other side? And uh, and so this is a battalion commander talking to the division commander, and they're around the same age, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it it's it's a classic example of that's the way I would see it as a battalion commander, but as a division commander, if I'm Gavin, it looks at it very very differently. And Gavin understood his concerns, and that's why he didn't kind of come back at him and say, "Do what you're told," or you know, nothing like that. He was like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I get it, but this is where we are, dude. You know, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is what we need, really need right now. Um, you know, so it's. I just think that's one of the things that's endlessly fascinating about it. Plus, the fact that they're going to do it, that the, you actually have these guys who will actually get in these boats and do this crazy thing. But the other thing too is is the problem with getting the boats there is another sort of insight into Market Garden and its problems. We've got a snake-like column on this very fledgling sort of road that we're trying to hang on to against counterattacks coming from either direction. And where the hell are the boats? How can we get them there? I, I'm amazed they ever get there at all, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. E- even though they're not much to look at, but how in the world they have enough 
unity of purpose to get him there at all. And by the way, this is all happening in the context of some German air response too, which has bottlenecked us even more and obviously leads to Ridgeway and his odyssey, you know, and he's all angry. He's in an evil mood through this whole thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, they're juggling a lot of balls, I guess you'd say. But but they yeah, they, I mean, they could have got the bridge on the first day, couldn't they? They could have. Now, but the question is where they hold it. And I, I think that's why I mentioned they're, they're in a kind of frost-like situation then because the Germans are coming back for that bridge. And so you're going to end up in, in some pretty British combat. You do anyway, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly they could have had the bridge. Let's imagine we've got the 504th there, and let's say it's Cook. And Cook does precisely what... Uh, Gavin would have wanted, which was moving directly along the river, kind of outflanking the buildings and getting straight to the bridge. You've got, what, a squad and a half of Germans there or something like that, and they don't know what's going on in any way. But you've got then these SS reinforcements and the other comp group, uh, Hanky, I think was the guy's name, whatever his name was, it's coming in to, along that bridge. So there's going to be a response. So either way, the bridge is going to be a battleground, um, in my view. But, but also, too, you know, you, you need the armor there, ultimately. And, you know, and so that's what's playing out further to the south. And you, you don't know how that's going to affect you if you're taking that bridge the first day. I guess. But but on the other, but the flip side of that is that that, that 30 Corps does reach them on, I think it's, it's the 19th, isn't it? And, and they, you know. They, 19th, yeah. yeah the so, afternoon of the 19th. So yeah. and, and at that point, the counterattacks on the Germans are pretty, you know, insignificant. So and yet it's not until the following day, the 20th, that they do the kind of wild crossing, the wild crossing and do the kind of big crossing over the, you know, secure the other side and that time it's too late you know that 24 hours actually is 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 that's the 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 crux of it isn't it that you know that's when the battle is lost in that 24 hours in which you know situation is getting worse at arnhem and they're 24 hours behind but even though 30 core are at the bridge by the 19th yeah but even if even if you even if let's say you're across the bridge by the midnight midnight of midnight of tuesday into wednesday frost's got what the the, the morning to go hasn't he, he that, that's what he's capable of i mean maybe maybe though that what the germans do is then rush everyone south they leave frost to stew because after all uh, you know schwerpunkt is south is the analysis of the battle that 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 you can you can leave frost to stew even if they've taken nymagen bridge if they can't get from nymagen bridge to um you know, it's this whole thing of as long as you're but, hold, but you, as long as you're holding stuff up. If you're the Germans, all you've got to do is hold this thing up. All you've got mm-hmm. to do is delay it. All you've got to do is be the is you know be a fly in the ointment. No matter what bridges they're holding, because after all, you know. But if this is going to show the war, you know, go for it. Well, yeah, well, yes, you know, you've got yes, typhoons. It's yeah, nice yeah. and flat around well, you know the highway. Yeah. You know, just get on with it. You know what I've always thought? If there's a, a kind of hero on the German side, it's whoever blew up the, the, the bridge over the Sun Canal. Yeah. Uh, because that cost the Allies about 36 hours. Right. Um, yeah. If that doesn't happen, I think and it's this very is further possible. South. This, is, this is further south and towards Eindhoven, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is further south toward Eindhoven in the 101st Airborne Sector. And it's literally, you know, of course, the bridge is blown up in the faces of the paratroopers who are about yep. to take it. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean anything for infantry. They can get across, but it's the vehicles. Yeah. So that takes us, what, close to 36 hours or something to get that sorted out. Yeah. And that's crucial time, like, like you had mentioned, James. I mean, these are the crucial hours, the golden hours. Let's imagine you have those tanks 
get up there to 82nd Airborne on September 18th, yep. uh, maybe even in the morning or whatever, because they're probably going to get there because yep. the Germans are so confused and in flux anyway. And so now maybe you can move from Nijmegen. Maybe Frost is going to get relief earlier on. But, right. of course, you're always going to have that issue of Frost over here with the Arnhem Bridge and most of the rest of First Airborne farther to the west yep. in Osterbeck and how you're going to repair that breach and whatever is never going to be easy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the Sun Canal is what kind of um, dictates much of the pace of the battle, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but here's why Market Garden is a zero defect operation, because, I mean, how, how, how many bridges and canals do we have to have for this thing to, to work? I mean, yeah, so well, they, the Germans managed <laughs> to blow one of them. Yeah. Right, managed to blow one of them, Sun, a relatively minor one in the grand scheme of things, and look what it does in terms of yep. a monkey wrench for the whole operation. And yet, and, the, and, and yet, <laughs> you know, they do get really close. Bernie Cord do get to the northern shore of of the Rhine. I mean, it is, it is, I mean they it, do it get there. Yeah. It is interesting that, that, that I mean, earlier on, I was, you know, I said, you know, the REF get the blame from first airborne over the choice of drop zones. 30 Corps have, have taken an awful lot of criticism for their performance <laughs> um, in this battle, like a hell of a lot. And yet, as James points out, that, you know, that they're essentially on schedule, even though, as you say, the Son Canal has been blown. They're essentially on time. And that, 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 you know, Frost later in life said, oh, you know, if it had been George Patton, he'd have got to us and we'd have been okay, I reckon. And all that's all that sort of... Well, well, I don't either. No, nor do, no, nor do, nor do I. Not one bit, not one bit of it. But it's, but it's the 30, 30 core have carried the can for a lot of this. When, as you, as you say, it's so many moving parts. It is this thing that there, there's no redundancy built into this operation at all, is there? Um, uh, it all has to go right. You know, it all has to go right in a sequence. Yeah, um, and it the just weather does, and even and the weather has to behave. And and of right. course, you know, any anyone with any now knows that that doesn't happen. That doesn't. I mean, they were lucky the first day. They had glorious weather, and then that was the the extent of their luck. I've always thought Thirty Corps has had kind of a bad rap, and um, on a lot of levels. Now, of course, there's the the tension between the First Airborne and Thirty Corps and all that. Yeah. yeah. But of course, there's then the the Eighty Second Airborne and the anger then among Cook and his guys over doing the wall crossing, yeah. taking the uh, the railroad and road bridges, and yeah. and then the British tanks not moving on to save the day and all this business. I, I just think it's sad, but unfortunately, by the time the battle has played out, in a way, it's too late to get what you want from Arnhem. Um, you know, even if you can negotiate that 11 miles, and it's not going to be easy. I mean, the, we all know. We visited this place many times. We understand the terrain. Those That sort of winding road um, and what you could do with anti-tank guns and Panzerfaust and whatever else. Yeah. It's 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 not going to be that easy to get up there. Yeah. So it's really become just a rescue operation rather than this kind of coup de main. Right. And here we all go to Berlin and but, live happily ever after. But but but, but it's, it seems it seems to me that the, the the criticisms of Arnhem are, are are twofold. First of all, that you know there's no contingency, so everything's got to go perfectly, and the chance of that happening is almost zero. And yet, Thirty Corps does get to the northern shores of the Rhine and and does get to Arnhem. I mean, you know, I know it's too late. Um, you know, Thirty Corps is at Nijmegen by the nineteenth of of September. Had they all gone for it and had the bridge been in been in Allied hands by the nineteenth when Thirty Corps were there, they could have got across. You know, they could have just gone for it. You know, I, I actually think it's it's closer to to working than people have often given it credit for. But the second criticism is, 
even if it had worked, even if they had got to kind of Arnhem and, and managed to hold the bridge, then what? You know, are, are you able to exploit that that northern window into Germany outside of you know north of the Seafried Line, the West Wall, enough to kind of prompt German collapse or or to get in to you know well, to alter the war and win the war by Christmas? And and most people seem to think not. But I I, I wonder what your take is on this, John. Uh, my take is that all of that is just very fatuous. Um, the idea that we can have a long column, uh, some somehow hopefully a reinforced column, go all the way from Arnhem to Berlin in northern Germany without a massive reaction on the part of the Germans. Um, and even if we do get to Berlin, uh, there's this thing called urban combat that really chews up uh, a lot of divisions and troops. And uh, I mean, I, I, to me, when you look at what the Germans are able to pull off with the Battle of Bulge and how they were able to, to at least provide major resistance to the Soviets from the fall of 1944 onward, um, it is just completely out there in la-la land to imagine that the Germans are not going to have some sort of major reaction to this single thrust in northern Germany along very good tank country and all the rest. You would have had to have some serious close air support in order to survive there. And, you know, 30 Corps is undermanned, um, and, and so is 12th Corps and, and the other supporting units. Are we really going to be able to reinforce the way we want to, or are we going to have to rejigger most of the U.S. First Army to go up through this bottleneck there somehow too? You know, well, that's, that's, I, I just that's, don't think it makes any sense. That's what Montgomery's anticipating, though, isn't it? Is it, is it basically, is it will will result in, you know, him Ike having to rebalance and and favor the British Northern Thrust, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's as it's as, it, it, I mean, I think I think one of the core core problems of, of, of all this is an allied misapprehension about what the July bomb plot means. And the, 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 you know, if you're, if you, if you, if you're still treating the Germans as rational, which the, which they still kind of are, you know, all we've got to do is win, win one decisive battle and the Germans will throw in the towel. Uh, 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 that's all gone out. That, that, you know, Falaise has proved that isn't going to happen. And the reason it isn't going to happen is because of the July bomb plot. The Allies think that means the Germans are on the brink of collapse because there hasn't been an attempt to decapitate the government. Surely it's going to happen again. Surely that's going to result in it, it, it in Hitler falling. And in fact, it results in the opposite. It results it results in, in a strengthening of the regime, a bolstering of the regime, and then a sort of electrification of... Um, of the German command on every level, um, it, it, you know, not not just high command, but all the way down, all the way down. That you know, you've got to show your loyalty to the Fuhrer. You've got to be a, beyond suspicion and all that sort of For stuff. For sure. Well, and, that, and you know, this generation of Allied senior leaders had lived through November nineteen eighteen. Yeah. When yeah. the German government had collapsed, and yeah. and that kind of caught the Allies by surprise somewhat. And so they're thinking, okay, this is, I guess, happening again. And, yep. and so, yes, the market garden is definitely predicated on underestimating what the Germans can still do. Yeah, and, and we a, can look at it as historians, and we realize what they were capable of. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so that's why I think it doesn't make much sense. The other problem is that Montgomery and Eisenhower see the strategic results of a successful market garden very differently. Uh, yeah. Montgomery thinks this is a war winner on the way to Berlin. We're home by Christmas or something somehow. Eisenhower thinks I'm going to get a couple of bridgeheads and that'll really help me maybe eventually exploit right. that and outflank right, right, right. Siegfried line. So, cause it seems yeah. to me that the, the, the fatal flaw with, with market garden is less the fact that it's a bridge too far and more the fact, you know, and it's just a, a, as a plan, it's got no redundancy and it's got, you know, it's got no, no 
there's no plan B other than that. It seems to me that the the biggest flaw in it is that even if it's successful, you can't you're not going to be in a position to exploit that success. But therefore, there's no point to it. And the whole the whole the whole strategy of the Allies is predicated on this idea of the broad front strategy. You know, whether that be, you know, Mark Clark before the fall of Rome in in late May, early June 1944, or whether it be, you know, lining up against the West Wall or whatever, you know, it's that it's that broad front strategy, this sort of putting our huge um, superiority and firepower and an arsenal of supplies of, of men and particularly machinery in a way that just makes creates so much pressure the Germans can't can't maintain it. But of course, this is the absolute antithesis of that. that that's the opposite problem this is this, well, this is a is, more germanic it, it, approach it's, it's, a sort of you know a lightning strike yeah and, you know well and also is, isn't it isn't right. it isn't it about the psychology of the rhine or something as well isn't that the you know the the the, the rhine is germany's great border isn't it is it's great is it's great you know uh frontier barrier. a barrier mm-hmm. the great barrier and is 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 are they thinking into you know is the thinking or montgomery's thinking this is how he thinks he, th- he thinks historically he thinks like this to some extent yeah he's thinking once the rhine has fallen the the the, the rational people in the uh, my rational opposite numbers who think the way i do because that's the mistake people make isn't it that he's assuming that he's assuming generals think like him because he's a general he's assu- assuming they can see the same realities strategic realities as him and you're across the rhine that means you're into germany is that that must be partly what what the thought process well, is. I, th- I think he's you're striking a psychological blow to a German way. I of think it's even more. You know? Yeah, I think it's even more. And I think it's very understandable. He's looking at it through a British lens. What yep. the V2s are just now coming into yep. play. And you know what? I mean, you've been through five plus years of war now of, of getting British cities bombarded of civilian losses. Yeah. You know, we're, we're getting pretty tired of that. And V2 is a pretty terrifying weapon because it's not as manageable as the V1. Yeah. So you've got that. And you have the fact that Britain is really near the end of its manpower reserves, of its combat capabilities and all yep. this. So, you know, Montgomery wants to end this war as quickly as possible. And he sees this as a potential opening. And I think that's what brings out this kind of uncharacteristic boldness in him. Uh, that you know, Montgomery is a very humane guy in terms of he does not want to see gr- meat grinder casualties and all the kind of things that you might in- that could ensue from the broad front. He thinks if there's a way to get around that, then by golly, let's do it. And of course, we always know the subplot is Montgomery wants control of things and yeah. wants to be the lead guy, and he's he wants glory and all that. Of but, course, but it's too. not just that. But I've is always it? felt that's sublimated. I don't think it's just that. I think that's sublimated to these larger these larger considerations, these larger factors that are completely understandable. Yeah. But I think this was the point where Eisenhower, um, for once, kind of fails to look more broadly and say, okay, we get that, but we've got to think about the feasibility of this and the fact that the broad front makes way more sense for what we're trying to accomplish yeah. and maximize our chances of, yeah. of and success. I mean, and our means to do it as well, because it's about it's as, yeah. as much as as much to do with that as anything else, isn't it? It's all very well planning planning things that you can't pull off. Um, John, as ever, this is. Uh, uh, I mean, now I'm going to have to. Uh, at the start of this podcast, what did I say? What did I say to both of you? What have you <laughs> You're not going to deal with it anymore, what, right? What but you, you will. Done? You'll be what reading you, more. <laughs> what have you done for God's sake? 
I said to myself, oh, this is just appalling. Well, but the one I, thing I would just say, one thing I oh, just my last God. point on this is, is that, that <laughs> if, you know, if, if you're arguing, John, that Monty is a humane guy and he doesn't want to have the meat grinder. I mean, crikey, the, the, the subsequent battles, you know, absolutely prove the merit of that, of that aspiration, don't you? Because, you know, from the Hurkin Forest right through to, you know, small little battles like Geilenkirchen to Veritable to Metz to, oh my goodness me, you know, it goes, so it goes on and on and on, you know, Arkin, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, Strasbourg, you know, it it is a meat grinder. I mean, that's what happens. That's, that is the consequence of not, of Market Garden not being successful is this meat grinder that happens over the, over the, the ensuing months in the kind of mire and ghastliness of the winter of 1944 1945, which, as I never tire of telling people, was always a brutal winter. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was, well, and, and you know, it's very sad because we can understand now you weren't going to be able to get away from that, even if Market Garden succeeded. Yeah. And the reason was you had not destroyed the will and the capability of Germany to resist. As long as Hitler remained in power, Ala mentioned earlier um, that the attempt on his life only strengthened his hold on power and the regime and thus German willingness to fight, I guess we'd say. And, and you know, we, we began this podcast talking a little bit about, you know, what we think of as just nutso people, you know, with Panzerfaust in April 1945, continuing to fight and, and you know, fighting for the towns and cities. Of course, in the, in the movie Fury, um, you know, one crewman famously asks another, you know, why don't they give up? Why are they fighting? And, and another one looks at him and says, would you? Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, that's a very, that, that's a very powerful thing because regardless of where you sat in terms of what you felt of the Fuhrer as a German, now you're fighting for your homeland. Yeah. And even against Americans and Britons and Canadians or whatever, who seem to be more benign enemies than the Soviets, you're still fighting for your home. And I, I do think that the Allies kind of overlooked that. But that was what was different than World War One, that we kind of got lucky that they collapsed internally this time. But that was also why we had World War Two, because you never truly broke their will to fight. And to do that, unfortunately, you had to conquer the country. And that meant, as you know, James, you were discussing all those terrible meat grinder battles. If you really wanted to win this thing for the long term, to, to, to reap the benefits that we now do today, to have a completely different Germany, a completely different Europe, that part of it, that's probably what you had to do, Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Amazing. That's a fantastic summation, I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, well, John, thank <laughs> you. That's been fascinating. Yeah, and it proves to me why job. we need to keep talking about this so we get insights from people like you on the subject matter. Because Alan and I, you know, we, we're probably just a little bit too... Uh, having, don't have enough distance from it now <laughs> we've talked it over too much and sometimes a bit of fresh input is what's required no, i understand absolutely and i'm never ever gonna talk about market garden ever again i, I vow <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna hold you to that yeah, yeah, until, yeah. until next time i'll bet it lasts about an hour maybe an hour after this is over well well jim's coming over here shortly so uh, I mean, we, we will be talking about it I'm, I'm absolutely no doubt. i see it happening i definitely see it happening. <laughs> well thanks very much thanks john uh thanks for joining us um we'll see you all soon thanks for listening everybody cheerio cheerio